Welcome back to the Technology Policy Institute's podcast, Do Think Minimum. I'm your host, Scott Walston, President and Senior Fellow at TPI. I'm joined by TPI Senior Fellow, Sarah O. Today, we're excited to have Communications Daily Executive Editor, Jonathan Make, with us for what is becoming our annual year in review and discussion of what to pay attention to next year. Jonathan, thank you for joining us. It's great to be here virtually. Hopefully next year, we will do it in person. It's certainly been a crazy year to say the it, least. It has been. Maybe next year will be a little bit more normal. We'll see. Don't jinx it, though. Yeah, that's true. Before we turn to what we think we need to pay attention to next year, let's take a little look back. I guess the biggest look back is not just over the past year, but the past few years. FCC Chairman Ajit Pai is on his way out. What do you make of his tenure? Well, in terms of what the commentators and observers and whatnot are saying, I mean, I don't think anyone has said that he hasn't been effective and for the most part made quick decisions, and the staff seem to have high regard for him. Always a good sign at the agency for the chairperson to be held in high regard, even by the career staff. He certainly got a lot done on Spectrum. There are some things, as with any FCC, that will go over into the next in this case, administration, and the next FCC media ownership has continued to be intractable. There are some outstanding issues on the Lifeline, subsidized broadband service, some pretty big and potentially costly issues on the Universal Service Fund. That's many, many billions of dollars a year in subsidies to phone companies to provide subsidized phone and broadband service. There are also expectations that with the next FCC come January 20th or so, that there will be some rollbacks to the PI Commission's rollbacks to net neutrality deregulation. Re-rollbacks. <laughs> Indeed. So that seems like a pretty sure bet that there would be something on that. And right now, presumably it will be done by the time he leaves. There is a auction of the so-called C-band, where satellite companies are vacating a swath of mid-band frequencies and wireless carriers are right now bidding for them. The value of the auction last we checked last night was above $20 billion. And I believe that that is in addition to, so those would be the proceeds that the government would get. However, there's another 10 or so billion dollars, maybe a little bit more, that would be on top of that, that presumably has already been raised in the auction to pay for these relocation of the satellite providers and compensate other users who would be affected. So that will be interesting. And presumably there will be more auctions of spectrum and also more spectrum items by the next FCC. You know, one thing that strikes me about the FCC, this FCC and what's before it is that a lot of things really continue across administrations. Democrat or Republican. I mean, obviously, the Title II and net neutrality debates are pretty pretty vicious, but spectrum auctions that you're talking about and how we manage spectrum, those have continued along the same trajectory really since maybe Bill Kennard or Reed Hunt. And the party of the chairman hasn't really mattered that much. And over Pi's tenure, I think he's mostly done a pretty good job of staying outside of all of the chaos caused by anything Trump ever does. And whether that was lucky or by design, I don't know, until maybe the Section 230 business. I think that's a very important thing to talk about, and I'm sure we'll get to that. That is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, where the president did get directly involved 
And then the NTIA at the executive order of the president, which is part of the Commerce Department, petitioned the FCC to try to clear up the law on what tech platforms need to do in order to have a liability shield when it comes to content that's on them, content moderation. We don't know if Pi will do anything on it before he leaves. It is thought that one reason or the main reason why the sitting FCC commissioner, Mike O'Reilly, did not get, or rather his reappointment was withdrawn after it was sent to the Senate. The reason why that's thought to have happened is due to something related to this proceeding. And then there's a new FCC commissioner, Nathan Simington, who we don't know a whole lot about. He is a little bit new to some of these circles, and he has taken the slot that was held by Commissioner O'Reilly. What do we know about him? I mean, we know um, he's connected to the 230. That's how we sort of learned about him in connection with the Section 230. I don't think many people know much about him beyond that. You know, he might turn out to be great or not. What have you heard? I can't even say I've heard that much because much of the focus wasn't so much on him as an individual, but how his nomination was proceeding and would the full Senate vote on it before Congress adjourns for the end of this Congress in preparation for the next Congress and the next administration. He has a background as a lawyer, I think, at a couple different private firms. He came from NTIA, which, as we mentioned, was involved with this social media tech platform liability petition to the FCC. And he just started this week. He has not announced any staff yet. So he seems like a little bit of an unknown quality. And that's not to say that some previous commissioners may have also been unknown individuals, although he does seem a little bit less known to the communications bar than your typical new FCC member. What are the Vegas odds on who's going to be the chair? <laughs> you know, I wonder if there is a market in this. Sometimes we forget how small our world is. I don't know if there are enough people to, to bet on it. <laughs> you know, you'd be surprised, right? I would say this too is a lot of speculation. Jessica Rosenworcel is the senior person there and Commissioner Starks is not. So that could play a role. People certainly think that Commissioner Rosenworcel has, you know, wanted to be chair for some time. It's even possible that she or he could even become the permanent chair. You know, that's not something you need Senate approval for. It's just getting that third Democratic member in. And there's obviously plenty of speculation about who that might be. You know, we're looking into it now. But look, a lot of these predictions, unless you hear it from someone who's on the transition team or something like that, you know, the people who often are contractually bound or otherwise bound, not to really reveal that to any stakeholders. It's certainly hard to get concrete information, but it does lead to a lot of guessing. To jump back a little bit, what do you all think at Saratu was the most important development or thing that happened in the past year, not necessarily in telecom, but could be tech, also Supreme Court rulings, new regulations that passed or were rolled back? What's the most significant thing that happened? That's such a great question. And maybe one thing to say is that the impact of the pandemic in our area has been very significant and will have very long-lived effects. And the other thing that's very significant is the increased focus on diversity, civil rights, even criminal justice reform, because that also impacts you know, this area very much. We, at our publication, just 
had a special report just a few days ago that we spent much of the year working on about just this, you know, about the diversity challenges at the state regulators at the FCC within the communications bar. You're seeing, you know, again, this isn't strictly policy, but You see it in the policy realm, in the business realm, within these industries. You're seeing every day different diversity-related announcements, initiatives, new people being named to, you know, head of diversity efforts at a particular association or company. So I do think the impacts will be very long-lived. And with the pandemic, that you're seeing an increased focus on the digital divide, certainly, and on all the different things that spring from it. Finally, I think. The technology antitrust, TPI, is much more of an expert on these things than me. The lawsuits, the CDA, Section 230, attention to that, those are going to have very, very big ramifications because the power of the platforms vis-a-vis the incumbent carriers, the ISPs, you know, the internet service providers and like that has been growing. And it's almost like the pendulum kind of swinging where the power, or if you will, or even maybe the political goodwill, which had very much been on the new tech or newer tech entrance side for many years, that's shifting. And the impacts of that could play out in a new telecom act. They're continuing to play out in court and possibly next session of Congress will get a national privacy law. A lot of attention to what California already has done. They've already passed the law. Sarah, what surprised you this year? What do you think was the most important? Well, I was thinking that one outcome that would be really great from this year would be the digital divide problem. And if the next FCC really was committed to reforming USF and really digging deep into the digital divide problems, that would be a great outcome from this year. I mean, maybe the next administration or next chair will want to revisit like Title I, Title II, but Actually, in terms of priorities, this is a great time to focus on USF reform. It's very complicated. People understand digital divide problems, but a lot more work can be done. I agree. I mean, it's both been encouraging and discouraging to see all of the new focus on the digital divide. I mean, encouraging because people outside of telecom experts suddenly worry about it and notice it and recognize that it's a big, huge problem and so want to do something about it. It's a little discouraging to me to see people so unwilling to examine what works and what doesn't. There's appetite to spend money on programs and no appetite to spend even a tiny fraction of that amount of money on experiments or studies. I mean, obviously I'm biased because I like doing studies, but I also really think we should be learning what works and what doesn't. We're not seeing much of that and I wish we would, but I agree that for the first time, The digital divide is something in the broader popular understanding in the conversation. And that's got to be a good thing. I think the impact on schooling, which certainly some of the Democrats, not just Democrats, but some of the Democrats, Commissioner Rosenworcel, point to pretty frequently, that seems to really bring things to focus for just your average consumer. And yeah, you know, just going to the USF, the kind of surcharge on phone bills is above 30% right now, and it continues to rise. It too is a little bit intractable because the only way to spread out this cost so that telephone users aren't the only ones bearing it would be very controversial. And 
not even just politically. It could be very controversial with consumers themselves, and certainly the companies don't want to pay it. And that is imposing it on broadband, on other things that could be constituted or are right now as an information versus a telecommunications service. There, too, has been a sort of deadlock on that between stakeholders and One of those folks who was on one side of this was Commissioner O'Reilly, just left the commission. And he had said, there's just an impasse here and, you know, we're not able to do anything. Whether it gets solved, you know, in the next session of Congress or by the next FCC, that's so hard to tell. But that is part of many, many billions of dollars a year in, in trying to fund some of these efforts. And then, of course, you have, as you mentioned, the measurement problems with the data, the mapping. There are a lot of issues. I mean, how they raise revenue for universal service, you're right. And Commissioner O'Reilly is right. It's just, it seems so intractable right now, but it's such an important problem to solve. I mean, you said that the rate is up to 30%, but it's, you know, it's worse than that because it's on only certain types of telecommunications, like you said, and that's long distance and mobile. And long distance isn't really a thing. It's mostly a thing for very poor people and immigrants, people who buy long distance calling cards. So it's a hugely regressive tax. You know, the more you raise it, the more you're actually hurting low-income people too. Something's got to be done about it, and there just doesn't seem to be appetite for doing that something. Maybe between the two of you right now, you could kind of talk a little bit about what could be done on the data collection side, on the mapping side, and on the more pilot program side. The one thing I'll add that there's a lot of momentum for, and, and there was even momentum before the coronavirus, is telehealth and experimenting with it the government funding it in various ways, including the FCC. But certainly, I'm sure there's a lot more experimentation that could occur. Yeah, it seems wrong to say that there's any positive result from the pandemic because it's so awful and so terrible in so many ways. But it did allow jumps forward in certain things like telemedicine. Telemedicine is the kind of thing that sort of seems to have always been just around the corner. And then suddenly it happened out of necessity. And we saw lots of rules and regulations rolled back that were actually functioning as barriers to entry to telemedicine and other things. And we'll see whether those are reinstated or not as the pandemic ends. And also, I don't want this to be sort of an anti-regulation rant because there are rules that matter. And there's going to be a lot of thinking on which of those are important and which of those really were just protectionism. And I wonder, and maybe you think this is completely wrong, I wonder if it's going to have an effect on the net neutrality debate. And here's why. All of a sudden, people are talking to their doctors on the internet. Their kids are going to school on the internet. And everybody gets stuck with frozen Zoom calls, bad quality. And it's not because of the bandwidth that comes into their house. It's because of God knows what's happening somewhere. Might be in their house, might be somewhere else. And one of the things that might be good for that is guaranteed quality connection, paid prioritization. Mm. Not that that has a specific definition, but suddenly you can see the benefits of it. What if you, know, you could have a guaranteed high-quality connection from your kids to their school? That might be worth something. And I wonder if that will start to change people's minds, at least in terms of what they think are sort of the absolutes about what must and must not be allowed. Sarah, do you have other kind of solutions or things that we should be doing on experimenting? Well, the FCC, they have a new economics office. And so they're kind of ramping up on bringing together all their economists. And hopefully that would be a place of experimentation that they could run experiments. But, you know, for us looking from the outside in, like there are plenty of places where the FCC can provide test beds for experiments or pilots. They're just resource constrained, I think. 
why not do more experimentation with USF funding? And another thing with USAC, the administration company that manages the USF, you know, it's a huge bureaucracy. They have huge overhead costs, but they're not really doing much to study the program. They administer it. So there's just a lot of room for improvement, especially administering checks and payments now with technology is much cheaper. Overhead costs aren't that high to cut checks out and track them anymore. So you kind of wonder, why is there so much overhead for a $10 billion fund? Can some of that go towards improving the programs? If it were a private company spending $10 billion a year, you would think that they would learn how to reshuffle the money. That's me ranting about USAC (laughs) and USF. USAC is a fascinating entity, the Universal Service Administrative Company, and they do things, I think, many of the USF, as you said, administration there, I believe, technically a nonprofit. My understanding of the situation there and how they interact with the FCC is the FCC kind of gives them orders and gives them data, and then they have to figure out how to make it work. And apparently, it's not always as straightforward as we think it might be. Right. I'm first in line to criticize the Universal Service Fund, but they are under huge political pressures. And that seems to determine so much of where the money goes and how it operates that it's not like USAC itself is trying to behave that way. You know, I think there's sort of a function of the politics and institutions all around it. But actually, Jonathan, I'm curious. So we have a new administration coming in. You've been a journalist for a long time. Part of being a journalist is developing sources and knowing who's doing what and where. Got a whole new group coming in. How do you go about building up your new sources and learning what's going on in a new environment? Well, I think that's a good question because it ties into the pandemic. And often when we are talking about normal times, that is where the Bar Association's events and TPI, Aspen, which will continue in person, and CES and the NAB show. These are all different sorts of gatherings of people that that is where you get to chat with people informally and then often continue in other forums. I can't reveal too much about sources and (laughs) and methods, (laughs) you know, as they say. But yeah, that can be a little bit of a challenge for all the different stakeholders, not just the media. Another thing that's been interesting about the pandemic just in the FCC land is it's kind of shown some interesting patterns with who might be accessible to the media, who might not. And it's something we've written about. You see it each month, the FCC has a monthly meeting of commissioners. And there have been months where very few of those five commissioners have taken questions from the press. And that's evolved too. And just to throw in something, when we did this a year ago, we were talking about Julius Knapp, who had just retired. I just want to throw this in super quickly from the commission. He was a lifelong engineer and a career staffer who had run the engineering operations of the commission for a very long time. Respected by everybody. Exactly. And unfortunately, just this week, we lost a former PR person from the commission named David Fisk. And the, the reason why I wanted to briefly bring him in is he was there doing PR over multiple administrations, multiple chairmen, both political parties, until I unfortunately wrote his obituary yesterday. I did not even know that he had worked for a Republican member of Congress, meaning I never even knew what his political affiliation or party might have been. And mm-hmm. indeed, because this goes such a, a way back, 
This was in the 1970s, I believe. There's certainly a possibility that he wasn't even a Republican at the time. I just bring him in because he was more emblematic of the somewhat nonpartisan, less hyped up, less throwing zingers and all that at each other than we have seen in recent FCCs. And so with the meetings now of the commissioners, and this will be interesting, very interesting to see how it plays out in public and in private, because it will help determine what things move forward. Do they get adopted unanimously? Are there dissents? Dissents, as we know, can be cited in court opinions and legal filings and all sorts of other things that could help to undercut or make the case for different stakeholders' initiatives. In any case, so it's going to be very interesting to see if the next iteration of commissioners, particularly once it is five of them, are they too always one party's hassling the other? So much of these monthly meetings is just subtext after subtext of that. So anyway, David Fisk, may he rest in peace. He is emblematic of this earlier time where things were just a little bit less partisan. And people think now, looking back, that there was less of an influence, an active influence of Capitol Hill and even of the president. And we've seen this with certainly Trump and Obama. And we don't know if we'll see it with Biden. There was less of that political influence on the institution. It certainly seems to be symbolic of 2020 that we would lose David Fisk at the end of that year. We don't see a lot of people like him anymore. Do you think in terms of commissioners answering questions after meetings and so on, how has having meetings virtually affected that? It's much easier to not answer questions when you could just click leave meeting rather than having to walk through all the reporters to leave the meeting. Has Zoom affected the nature of the meetings? That's a great question. And it's not one I have thought about. And interestingly, even at the in-person meetings, the commissioners will often either decline to answer questions or they will only take one from each reporter with no follow-ups. Or Right, there's so many controls on things these days. And there have been incidents even at the FCC of you know reporters being physically shoved or another seemingly one-way or one-sided altercations with security and other staff. In any case, one thing the FCC has done a great job of, everyone seems to agree, is continuing on with the business of the FCC, even without being in a building and without meeting in person. And so I do think that the meetings show that. It's been very interesting technically because we've actually seen, albeit slow and halting, improvements in, is there a video? Can people ask questions? How many people can participate at a time. So I wish I had a more nuanced answer. Interestingly, there's so many other challenges, as we all know, in things these days that I hadn't even given it any thought. It's certainly a good thing that they continue or they they have to continue to meet. And it's a good thing that at least the public can't still observe it. What are you looking forward to this year, either in a bad sense or a good sense? What do you think is coming up that you're like, oh, we're going to pay attention to this. This is going to be a big deal. Well, again, just talking about the pandemic, this probably isn't what most people want to hear. But in the next year, slightly plus, we will certainly see some return to at least hybrid conferences. We have been talking to the organizers of the annual CES, which is you know one of the biggest trade shows in the world. And they will have at least some people there in January of 2022. I know that seems like an impossibly long time from now. It will be here before we know it. 
And while I'm not sure that we'll see things like the National Association of Broadcasters gathering en masse, 100,000 plus people in person in Las Vegas this year, I assume we'll see it next year. Just turning to the issues, I think a lot of people are very curious about net neutrality, both at the regulatory level and will there be any sort of grand legislative bargain. I'm not sure that there will be sort of bargain. Clearly, the tech issues, the tech antitrust, there are so many legal cases that could potentially result in the breakup of Facebook or possibly Google as well. That would have huge ramifications if such a remedy is upheld by a court. I mean, that's obviously a huge topic. And talking about breaking up those firms would be just a long, long legal process. And it seems unlikely. But it does have short-term implications, too. I mean, do you think this attention will have an effect on proposed mergers? What companies decide about acquisitions, whether in the tech space, telecom space? Do we see that yet? That's another good question and something I have started thinking about and partly in preparation for us chatting is, what will we see with deals? One thing that seems somewhat certain is that AT&T appears trying to restructure its ownership of DirecTV, which it didn't buy that many years ago. So it does seem somewhat likely that there will be maybe a private equity firm takes a stake in it or even control of it. That wouldn't seem like that would be too controversial. Again, I don't think this will be front page news for days and days. But the question is, will there or won't there be more broadcast deals? There have been a number of them. And there's currently one where Scripps is buying Ion. One question is, does that get approved by the outgoing FCC? It's a possibility. I don't have concrete information on it. It's on their docket already? The staff has been reviewing the deal. No. Hmm. To my knowledge, there's no decision that is being proposed at this time. But often, outgoing FCCs do a lot of different things, just like an administration might take various actions. It doesn't seem like we're going to have another T-Mobile buying sprint. Partly because there may not be candidates to buy like that within these industries. There's not a sprint to buy right now. Yeah. And you mentioned tech. Certainly, it seems like the antitrust focus will prevent any major transactions. We've seen some smaller ones. But again, it doesn't seem like we'll see something like when Facebook bought WhatsApp. That was a really big deal. It was many billions of dollars. It doesn't seem like we're going to get some new version of that by any of the major tech companies for the foreseeable future. Kind of ironically, if it does have an effect on their willingness to buy companies, it will set up a nice test for whether bigger companies acquiring smaller companies encourages entrepreneurship or discourages it. We'll have to wait several years to run that study, but we may get it. Yeah, this is a great time to be an antitrust expert for sure. And there's certainly going to be a lot more focus on that. And again, a lot more focus on the supremacy or trying to keep a lid on how big these companies can grow. We have it in the telecom space. There's a variety of rules that can kind of cap those things in the media space. We'll see what happens with tech. I would just posit that one other thing to watch in general, again, this is just pure speculation, is sometimes around the time of a change in administration, we see interesting changes at the top of, or or even in some of the lobbying ranks of the various trade associations here in Washington. And there haven't been a lot of very high profile, there have been some, haven't been too many high profile changes, particularly among the traditional companies regulated by the FCC. So that will be something interesting to watch. 
Do you have any hypotheses on why we haven't seen it yet? Is it just too early or is there something else going on? You know, one thing I can say that is just fact is a lot of these associations have renewed, which also is not infrequent, the contracts of their top people. And therefore, what that means is not only the top people, but often those who are reporting to them will stay for a time. What will be interesting is when those contract expirations end, some of which is going into the incoming administration, will there then be a change? And you know, another takeaway from it is that the leadership at a number of these groups, NAB, for instance, which we've been talking about, the National Association of Broadcasters, they have, by all accounts, had very steady and well-respected leadership there. So it tends to be when things are not going as well that you hear more about it. I think it's more a matter of how long do the people like Gordon Smith or Meredith Baker, who leads the Wireless Trade Association, Michael Powell, all of these people, by the way, are former regulators or legislators. Michael Powell's at the Cable Association. It's almost how long do they want to stay? There tends to be a just like with corporate CEOs, a kind of five, eight, 10-year type of shelf life on this. So I just think that's something interesting to watch. And also, we don't know at all where Chairman of GPI, seems like he may not know either, where Chairman of GPI of the FCC will go, where Greg Walden, who is leaving the House and the House Commerce Committee, will go, where Commissioner Mike O'Reilly of the FCC will go. So that's always interesting to watch where these folks end up. With trade associations, is it their tenure and you know some measure of how well they've done that matters? Or do the trade associations try to match the party in terms of their leadership? It's a great question, too, and something that, of course, either we on the journalism side or you on the data side could definitively... <laughs> right. It's, um, it is a, it's an empirical question. <laughs> uh, you know, measure. It's so mixed. You don't always see predictability there. I think on the whole... Yes, as the administrations change, and particularly Congress, too. Right. Of course, we don't know about the Senate, but we haven't really seen this huge switch in the, I was about to call them midterms, only because in terms of Congress, so far, there wasn't any great watershed change. But in the elections we just held, you know, the fact that, oh my goodness, the Republicans didn't take control of the House, right? That could have been a significant thing. Or the Republicans didn't really cement their control of the Senate. Or on the flip side, the Democrats didn't you know, they now have 53 votes or something in the Senate. seems like those things, too, have an impact, at least at the lobbying level. And some of it is even with the firms, the lobbying firms, and even the associations themselves subcontract out to. So I think we'll have to see. I mean, this would be a great study. I was just thinking that <laughs> this would be a good paper. <laughs> great study. So this has been a lot of fun. And again, I will say a prayer, literally, that hopefully we can do this, at least in some safe, even you know, we might be masked and socially distanced, but that it will be darn variety safe to do this next December in some in-person setting for the three of us. Yes, that will be great. I'm as introverted as they come, but I can't wait to be in a room with other people. For sure. Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. We really appreciate it. It's always a lot of fun. Thank Thanks, you both. Jonathan. Thank you so much, Sarah and Scott. 